Now, this morning we will be <clears throat> continuing our study in the Trinity Baptist Church polity, which means we're following the guidelines of our Constitution for Trinity Baptist Church. If you would like a copy to follow along this morning, please raise your hand. I would encourage you just to bring that. Usually the first Lord's Day of every month, we'll be taking the adult class and, and working through this. <clears throat> Again, just uh, more of an overview, but just to try to get some of those basic principles, maybe answer a few questions. So uh, another one right over there, Alex, my wife. And anybody else? Oh, Ann Rimbach up here at the front to Nate. Ann? All right. Well, if you, <clears throat> if you think about the Constitution, if you have it in front of you, uh, we've looked at Article 1, which uh, addressed the name of the church, the Trinity Baptist Church. We talked a bit about why that name is, is a good and appropriate name for us as a people of God. And then spent some time, Pastor Hoffmeyer did, <clears throat> going over uh, the purpose of the church. And basically, uh, it's stated very simply in two statements. We, we exist to glorify God in worship, evangelism, discipleship, church planting, and strengthening. And we do that primarily through preaching and uh, preaching the gospel and defending the truth. But the primary means for accomplishing that is prayer and the ministry of the word and other word-related ministries, like training men to uh, proclaim that word, or uh, selling books that uh, teach uh, on the word. And in conclusion, you could summarize that, uh, that whole purpose statement with a statement something like this. We are a company of people, a fellowship founded and centered around the Word of God, the Bible. And if you want a fuller explanation of what that looks like, go back and listen to Pastor Smith's uh, Sunday School classes on John Owen's Treatise for Church Membership. And it really opened up that fact. We are centered around, yes, the person and work of Jesus Christ, but as a fellowship, it's the Word of God which is central to us. And so it, it colors everything. And so that's why in Article Chapter 3, we talk about what we believe, the things that are most surely believed among us. There's one uh, version of the confession that was published with that title. Uh, and it's just a summary of uh, the things we believe. That is the L Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, commonly called the 1689. And that is a, a summary of uh, the teachings of God's Word that, as we understand them. And if you know something of, of many churches, they'll say, well, we believe the Bible. Well, that's all fine. What do you believe the Bible teaches? What do you believe the Bible teaches about the Old and the New Covenants? What do you think the Bible teaches about who Jesus Christ is? What do you think the Bible teaches about how somebody is saved? What is the church and how it's supposed to function? There's a lot of details that have to be sorted out and, and identified, and that's what the 1689 does for us. And so Article 3 highlights that. That is the... Uh, summary of the, the, most, the things most surely believed among us. And then in, in uh, Article 4, where we talk about church affiliation, <clears throat> it basically highlights the fact that Trinity Baptist Church is neither an island nor a mountaintop. That is, we are not the only church that ever existed, nor are we the apex of what every church ought to be, and therefore everybody should strive to be like us. Instead, we highlight in that section that though there is no higher authority than Christ himself ruling through the word in each individual church, we should cooperate and do cooperate with other like-minded churches. 
to various degrees, to the degree that we have felt a like-mindedness, we'll do more and more with them. And one aspect of the way that we manifest that uh, in this congregation is we have decided to have what's called an advisory council. Now, here's the difference between the highlighted, and we'll come to this a little bit later, between a confession and a constitution. The confession says, this is what the Bible teaches, we believe it. The constitution says, these are some of the principles that the Bible tells us ought to be, and here's how we, in our polity, in our church life, are working that out. There's nothing in the scriptures that actually says every church should have five men and advisory councils from other churches that can come in and give advice when asked for. You won't find that in the Bible. But you'll find other principles that talk about how we look for advice from other churches and how we look to, to others to give us help. And so TBC has established an advisory council to assist the elders. It's not a higher court of appeals. It's not a denomination. It is a court. It is a group of men who are set aside to give counsel to the elders in critical matters when we de deem it's necessary. But in order to do that, we bring those names to you, the congregation, and we'll do that at our annual congregational business meeting. Remind you of five men that we've looked at and have respected, and we have you vote on it so that you, as a people of God, say yes we can see that that man's a man that we would like to give counsel in our congregation. And so we bring that to the church. That's Article 4. Article 5, then, is the one that we'll be looking at today. And that's on church membership. Article 5 is on church membership. And let me just read the first paragraph and then summarize it. The requirements for membership, section 1. Any man or woman shall be eligible for membership in this church who professes repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who manifests a life transformed by the power of Christ, and who is living that life consistent with the provisions of this Constitution set forth in Article 5, Section 4, Paragraph B, and Subdivisions 1 through 5, thereof who have been baptized upon profession of faith, who expresses agreement with the uh, confession and constitution of the church, who intends to give wholehearted support to its ministry, and who is willing to submit to its government and discipline. Let me summarize what that means. This is talking about who are candidates for membership. Who should apply, right? It has to be a man or a woman. Well, that's a good place to start. Second thing, one, a man or woman who professes repentance and faith unto life and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, they have repented of their sins and they've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. They have been saved. And that is manifest, that's evident in the way that they live their lives. Right? Those are the people who should be applying for membership. Those are the kinds of people who are accepted for application for membership. But then it goes on to talk about some specific major lines of conduct, how that life is going to work itself out. And we'll come to that when we come to those sec that section of our Constitution as to what is required of church members and how they ought to live their lives. But this kind of uh, struck a question in me. And I wonder how many of you have ever been asked or ever thought to yourself, is formal church membership Biblical. How many of you have ever been asked that question or thought that yourself? 
All right, good number, right? It's a common question. And in, and in fact, we're going to see in this particular section, one of the places where the Constitution is most or very often challenged. But this is the point. Is church membership, formal church membership, biblical? Well, I can't turn you to a passage and said the apostles wrote down a list and they kept the list in, in uh, FileMaker Pro or in Quattro Pro or in some other. No, they didn't have any of those things. They didn't write any of that down. But what we do have is we have evidence that there clearly was a membership of the local church. Whether it was ever written or not, it was clearly understood. So, for instance, first of all, the church is a distinct group. When you look at the New Testament, you find that the church is clearly a distinct, identifiable group. It is identified and addressed by the apostles. Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, Saul is persecuting the church in Jerusalem. So in Jerusalem, he said, those people are part of the church. It's identifiable. In Romans 16 and verse 1, Phoebe is being commended as a servant of a church at Sancria, at the church at Sancria. Paul could say, there's a church there. They have this woman who is a servant in that congregation. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2, the church of God, which is at Corinth, or in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 1, the church of God, which is at Corinth. And later we'll read that that church actually gathered in certain places. It wasn't just a random group of people somewhere scattered throughout that particular city. Paul writing to the Thessalonians could also identify the church by writing to the church of the Thessalonians. You say, well, wait a minute. All of those are references to the universal church, the church, those who are saved by Jesus Christ, right? Well, that's all fine and good. But then we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 1. 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed, not the church of Galatia, but the churches of Galatia. Which identifies the fact that there's more than one community that are identified as churches. Communities of peoples gathered together. And also in 1 Corinthians 16, 19, he talks about the, the churches of Asia. Or in 2 Corinthians 8, 1, the churches of Macedonia. So it's identifiable groups in different cities. Multiple groups in different areas. Paul could even identify specific churches by the way that they supported him, for he says in Philippians 4.15, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. So these are really identifiable groups. You see, the, when we come to the New Testament and begin reading through it, we find out, wow, these are clearly identifiable groups, whether they are churches of God, 2 Corinthians 1.4, or the church of God, 2 Corinthians 1.1, and such. And if you turn with me to Acts chapter 2, and we'll spend a lot of time in Acts chapter 2 through this class this morning. <laughs> in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 to 44, we see it's a group that can be counted. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 41. 
So then, those who had received his word and, excuse me, were baptized. And that day, there were added about 3,000 souls. You could actually count them. One, two, three, four, five, six, 2,099, 2000, right? Up to 3,000. They're a countable number. And they didn't just look out and say, oh, everybody's standing out there, must be part of it, and just start counting. He said, no, that one is, that one's not, that one is, that one's not. So I can count those who are in the church. And chapter 4 and verse 4, we see again, a countable number. But many of those who had heard the message, I believed and believed, excuse me, but many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. It's a countable number of people. An accountable number of people, as we see from both these passages, that can actually grow. It can be added to, meaning they come from without and they become part of the group, part of the church. We read that in chapter 2, verse 41, or we could look at verse 47, chapter 2 and verse 47 of Acts. <clears throat> Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. So it is a specific number, an identifiable number, that can grow. We see the same thing in chapter 5 and verse 14 of Acts. This one is, a, is an interesting passage because it speaks of those who would be added and those who wouldn't. We read in verse 13, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. That says after the, uh, the death of Ananias and Sapphira for their hypocrisy and their lying to the Holy Spirit. He says, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people were holding them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers in the Lord were added to their numbers, multitudes of men and women. And so we see these believers being added to the church. There's a clear, defined membership. And as I mentioned a little bit ago, it's a, it's a membership which can be gathered in particular places. Acts chapter 15 and verse 22. Acts chapter 15 and verse 22. We've, we've seen that they can be identified by city, Jerusalem, Jerusalem uh, Corinth, Thessalonica, or Thessalonica. Acts chapter 15 and verse 22 we read, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose men from among them. Judas called Barsabas, Silas, leading men among the brothers to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They were all gathered here in Acts 15 to discuss and understand this particular uh, problem that had arisen between two churches in Antioch and Jerusalem. And back in chapter 14 in verse 27, and when they arrived... And gathered the church together. They began to report all things that God had done. This is the group that was, that was meeting. They gathered them together. You can actually bring the church to a local uh, place and they can be gathered in that place. In Romans chapter 16 and verse 5, the church can actually be gathered in a house. The church that is in her house or Colossians 4 and verse 15. Again, the church can meet in somebody's home. Colossians 4 and verse 15. <laughs> Almost all of these references are, all these references are found in, the confession, in our Constitution. So uh, that's why if you need to write them down, you can get them. Do I have something wrong here? 
All right, so Colossians 4 and verse 15. Greet the brothers who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. People that met in that house were called a church. Philemon has a similar uh, description of a church meeting in the house. So the first thing is it's an identifiable group that can be gathered somewhere. And it's clearly identifiable by those who are within and those who are without. It's a number that can grow and be counted. But then there's other aspects of church life which make it necessary to have some sort of formal church, dis formal church membership. And one of those is church discipline. In order to exercise discipline of say, the excommunication, you have to know who's in your house. I cannot go down the street and see a child lying or being disrespectful and bring them aside and discipline them. Why? They're not my child. <laughs> right? I can if it's one of mine, because I know who mine are, and that, well, not anymore. I wouldn't do that, but when they were in my home, then I knew that was, those were mine. I'm responsible. And they knew they were mine. Well, so for discipline to be enacted, you have to have a particular identifiable group. Matthew chapter 18, the classic passage. Turn there with me. If you're familiar at all with church discipline as one of the marks of a true church, you'll be familiar with this passage in Matthew chapter 18, one of the classic passages, one of the two places in the New Testament where the word ecclesia or church is actually used. In Matthew 18, verse 15, we read, <clears throat> Now if your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, then post it on your Facebook page so all the universal church can know. No. Tell it to the church. An identifiable group of people that have a responsibility for that individual, and you have to be able to tell it to that group. It's not just the church universal, right? And so there's an identifiable group. That's what happened in Acts chapter 5, verses 11 to 14. There were two particular people who were lying to the Holy Spirit and to the apostles within that congregation, and they were disciplined. And so people knew, I want to join them. That's a scary place to be. And others said, wow, that, they really deal with things over there. I want to be a part of that. I believe Jesus Christ is really risen. Discipline requires a, a local church. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, another key passage on church discipline. And we'll come to these, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them. But again, there's, a, there's an aspect of church discipline, and they have to put somebody out. Well, how do you put them out if they're not in? And I was thinking about this. I was thinking, you know, okay, let's just imagine you happen to be on a bowling team. I know there's not a lot of, whole bowl, lot of bowling going on, but let's just assume I'm choosing something that's a little bit more abstract. Maybe it'll stick a little better. So you're on a bowling team, and you walk into your lane, and, and there's somebody sitting there, and, and he's been bowling. You think, okay, well, he'll get up and leave. And, and he doesn't get up and leave. He says, oh, come on in. Just sit down with me. That's fine. And so your league gets started. And in the middle of, of your team bowling, this guy gets up and decides he's going to bowl. So you're not on our team. 
Well, yeah, sure I am. I was sitting here, you know, before you got here, so I'm just going to go ahead and bowl. No, no, you can't bowl. You're not on our team. And he's a lousy bowler, so you surely don't want him on your team. But the fact of the matter is, you say, so get out of here. You're not on, how can they tell him to leave? Well, he's not part of the team. If they're going to deal with somebody that's on the team who's cheating, he's got to be on the team. So this is a matter of, there has to be some identifiable group. If you're going to discipline them, they have to be in the group in order to be put out of the group. And that's found in 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8, 9, 11, and 12 and 13. There's another aspect to uh, church life, which is, requires a membership. And it's something called officers. We'll come to this later, too. Deacons and, and elders make up the, the leadership in the church, the officers in the church. And it's required to have a membership in order to have these kinds of people. Acts chapter 6. Anybody know what Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 is all about? Anyone of the members here want to give me a quick summary of what Acts chapter 6, 1 through 8 Yes, Michael, I saw your head nodding. What is Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 8? Yes, the prototypical deacons are chosen. And how did they choose them? Look out among yourselves. Who did they say, look out among yourselves? The citizens of Jerusalem? Hey, citizens of Jerusalem, just go find some guys you think might be good to handle this. No, he's talking to the church... And they said, look out among yourselves. So they knew the boundary of where they were supposed to look and they were given specific qualifications. And the first deacons were selected or proto-deacons were selected. In 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, we have the qualifications for the eldership. And we have Paul leaving behind Titus to appoint elders in the church to make sure everything's well-ordered. Well, you have to be able to identify them and see those qualifications in order for them to be recognized. There's an identifiable group of men who are deacons and elders. They are identifiable by the church, and there's a clear relationship between especially the elders and the members. Let's look at a few passages here. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 14. 1 Timothy 4, 14. <coughs> Do not neglect the gift within you, which was given to you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of the hands by the counsel of the elders. So the elders there in, in the church were identifying, had identified Timothy and laid hands on him. So there is a clear relationship between the elders and the people in setting aside Timothy to be a leader in that congregation, to be recognized in that congregation. Turn with me to uh, get the right reference here. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13. Now, the writer of Hebrews, is, it's clearly a little more difficult to identify the specific individuals he's talking about, but, but there's clearly an identifiable group with identifiable leaders because they're supposed to know who these leaders are so that, remember your leaders, verse 7 of Hebrews 13, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Now, he's not saying look around at all the different places that you can find any kind of Christians that kind of happen to be leaders. No, they've been teaching you. 
and you've been able to identify their life, a life that is the outcome of, of the outgrowth of faith in their lives. And so there's this relationship. You are to remember them. These are ones who have, have most likely passed away. But then down in verse 17, he specifically directs them now, obey your leaders and submit to them. Now let's try that on the universal church. Okay, so who are you supposed to listen to? Pastor down the street, the Methodist congregation? Pastor on the other side, the brethren, or they won't have pastors, but the, uh, the uh, Presbyterian congregation over there? Or the church you're a part of? It says, obey them. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. You see the, the real dynamic here. I am so thankful that I am not responsible for the souls of the universal church. Roughly 200 souls of this congregation are enough of a weight for me to have to try to bear. There's a specific relationship between the leaders and the congregation. So therefore you have to have membership to know who that relation, with whom that relationship exists. James chapter 5 and verse 14 says, call for the elders when you're sick. Right? Well, I'm going to call for the elders. I'm going to call for my elder friend uh, whose name is uh, Andrew Kerr because he's a doctor before he became a pastor. So there's my elder for today. No, no, no. He says, your elders, the elders that you recognize that are in the congregation where you are. So you see, there, there's all these kinds of indications. And then Acts chapter 20 and verse 28 is probably uh, one of the key passages to understanding that elders are in a particular congregation over that particular group of people. When he's talking to the church, the elders from the church at Ephesus, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So these are, there's a particular group there in Ephesus. That's the flock where he has made you an overseer. And so there's this, this relationship. Earl Blackburn in his book wrote this, Ordination to office is not a spiritual function of the church universal, but a ministerial function of the church visible. Somebody is set apart for the office. That's speaking particularly about 1 Timothy 4.14. So, We've seen it's an identifiable group. We've seen that the church discipline requires it. Church officers and the relationship between members requires it. The ordinances of the church require it. Baptism, there in Acts chapter 2. They were baptized into, and they, they believed they were baptized. They became part of and were added to the church there in Jerusalem. So when Jesus says in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, then there's a responsibility that goes with that, teaching them all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And so there's a dynamic even in, in those very words that des describe the fact that they are part of a body where they have joined themselves through baptism, have become members within that congregation, and are being taught by those elders or by that con in, within that congregation. And then the Lord's Supper. Let me just build an argument for you here. The Lord's Supper is this, another one of the ordinances. All believers should participate in the Lord's Supper, right? Luke twenty-two nineteen, 
1 Corinthians 11. All, they, they should. They, 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 this is what believers should do. They should be one to say, I want to come and partake of the Lord's Supper. And that's good that you have that, that everyone, that every believer has that desire. But the Lord's Supper is a church ordinance. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I do want to give credit. This, a lot of this comes from uh, a couple of books on my shelf, but also some, a message that Pastor Chansky had sent me his notes on so that it was already summarized for me in very helpful form. Uh, much of this material <coughs> rearranged slightly from what I was reading. But 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Who's the you? The Corinthian church. When you come together, when you gather together, it says in verse, it goes on, or excuse me, verse 17 is where I wanted, wanted to start. But, get, but, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. You're gathering together, and when they gather together, that's when they're going to participate in the Lord's Supper, as he's instructed them to do. That's when they've been messing up how they partake of the Lord's Supper. So all believers ought to partake of the Lord's Supper. It's a church ordinance. It's given specifically to the church. And if you go back to chapter 1 and verse 2, it's very clear this letter was not written, quote-unquote, to the universal church, but to the church of God, which is at Corinth. They were the ones who needed this instruction. And so the Lord's Supper is a church ordinance. All believers should observe the Lord's Supper. So Christians ought to belong to a local New Testament church in order to follow Christ's directive and observe the Lord's Supper. And then finally, the images of the church in the New Testament emphasize this. What's the church called? A family, or a household, and a body. Is there an identifiable place where your body is? I hope so. I hope it's not scattered all over North Jersey. <laughs> that would be very detrimental. <clears throat> but there's a household. They, and in a household, we know what a household is, right? There's one at 38 Washburn. There's another one at 25 Meadowbrook Lane. There's an, and it's an identifiable household with a head and those who are members of that church or that, excuse me, that home, right? And so it is with the church of God, which is the household of God, 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. And one man put it this way, the church is not a group of friends you've picked. It's a group of brothers and sisters God has picked for you. It's also a body, a body where gifts are to be used, right? Each little pinky and every little part. There are no extraneous phalanges or appendages in the church of Jesus Christ. Everybody who's part of the church has a spiritual gift that's just supposed to be used for the edification of the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 14. And again, I'm going quickly because some of these things we're going to come back to. And if you want to know more about the doctrine of the church, this is not a doctrine of the church class. This is a polity, how we live these things out. But I wanted to answer this question because I think it's one that we often come across and you need to have an answer for this. The body is identifiable and it, and it, and it all works together for the good of the whole. But now, let me just stop and say, you're, you're a member here 
if you have any questions, anybody have any questions? Because I have Pastor Chansky sitting here on the front row. <clears throat> anybody have any questions about that matter of church membership and a formal church membership? Jason. Right. Right. Well, I'll start with um, one particular verse. Yes, I'll repeat the question. Thank you, Brian. So the question was, uh, how should we think about churches which seem to be genuine biblical churches and yet don't practice a formal, identifiable church membership? Is that fairly accurate there? So how do we think about that? Well, here's, here's, here's what I would say. Romans 14 and verse 4. To his own master, a servant stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So my first thought is, they answer to God for what they do, not to me. And I don't have to answer to them. So if, 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 if they're doing something which God is not pleased, which Christ is not pleased with, then he'll an they'll answer for that. Um, I think that in practice, though they may not have a formal membership, they actually have an identifiable membership. That there is something in there that they will say, these people are in and these people are out. So in many of the churches, I think that's part of the, the situation. Uh, the, other, the other thing is, again, I think it, it, in America, it grows out of the... the uh, tendency to independence, radical independence. I want my way. And so, no, I'm, I'm just going to go from here to there uh, and just, you know, I'm not going to identify myself as under your leadership and under your, you know, and, and responsible to answer to you. And so I think that plays a part as well in, in our American in our American scene. Another part of it was something that uh, Pastor Donnelly highlighted in one of his messages, and that is that uh, in America, the other thing is we all want to just do our own shopping right? Go to the grocery store. Remember we talked about the aisle of, of the cereal aisle and just miles of cereals. And you're going, whoa, look at all these choices. And he called it the temple of the will. You go to Starbucks. Whoa, man, I could do this. Three pumps of that, two of this, this kind of milk, that kind of, oh, wow. And I want my own way. You know, we'll do it. We'll get the old, I, I, do it your way. And I think that also plays in some people's minds. I'll go here because I like the music. I'll go here because I like the preaching. I'll go here because I like the fellowship group. I'll go here for this. And when I think what we have to say is, okay, does that fit with the, the biblical model? So uh, while I would encourage people to attend churches, if somebody came to me and asked me, do you think this is okay? I said, well, if you're going to be there, commit yourself to being there. And commit yourself to being under the leadership of that church and being uh, willing to be disciplined by that church if you're, if you're sinning and not dealing with it and be willing to be a full, whole, biblical Christian in that congregation. That's how I would, that's how I would look at that. Matt. Yes. Right. How do we wrestle with that? Right. With some of the time delays and some of the other expectations. Yes. Yeah. There was there was there was one book that actually had a whole chapter on on the matter of credible profession of faith, and we'll come to that in just a minute. First of all, I would say we're not in we're not in first century Jerusalem. 
where to make that kind of profession was an absolute uh, radical statement. I live, in first cent I live in 21st century America where anybody can call themselves whatever they want to call themselves today and tomorrow they can call themselves something different. And that's both for, you know, well, all kinds of things, but especially religious things. And so I think there's a place where we look at the identifiable members of the church as those who are truly saved. And we have to say, wait a minute, it needs a little bit more in that culture than it does today to just make that statement. So I want to take some time to understand that. And we'll look at it even when we come to the Apostle Paul. For the Apostle Paul, he came to the church at Jerusalem. And he'd already proven himself in Damascus. And they said, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, and so there was a place for, for, for wisdom. And so I think that's where it fits in. Right? Pastor Chansky, you want to add anything? Well, I will add one of the things, which would be that I agree 100% with what you said. And um, I think another way to answer that question for people... Am I loud enough for everybody? Yes. yes. Yeah, okay. Another way to answer that question for people is to say, all right, you're saying the biblical pattern is Acts chapter 2, which pattern we should follow. So let's say the pastor is at the door after the morning sermon. Somebody walks out and says, Pastor, while you were preaching, I repented and believed in Christ. Now the only way to follow the biblical pattern would be to not just say this evening we're going to have a baptismal service and baptize that person it would be to tell everybody to go back in we're doing it now as soon as you say well it might be good to wait at least till the evening or it might be good to wait at least till next sunday you have agreed with departing from the biblical pattern so then from that point, it just becomes, what's the wisest thing to do, given all the biblical teaching? So almost everybody, even if they raise that question and say, Pastor, you should be baptizing, you know, my son or my daughter because he believes now. Um, the biblical pattern is immediately. And I, and I agree with the things Pastor Carlson said about the peculiarities of the, the church in Jerusalem on that day, baptizing people. We don't have apostles here. We're not in the midst of the greatest outpouring of the Spirit of God to date. And we don't have uh, miracles going on constantly around us. Right. Right. Yeah. So the question was, when you have this pattern in the New Testament where it seems in Acts chapter 2 to be an immediate uh, believing and then being added to the church... How do, we, how do we fit that into our pattern of taking time uh, between that time of profession and adding them to the church, right? So that's the answers we're given to that, to that question. All right. Well, let's move on here to the types of membership at this point. So section two, types of membership. And there are three types of membership. There's regular members, there's temporary members, and there's associate members. Now, uh, the type of membership, the first thing we have is everybody, the first thing in, in, the, in the first paragraph there in the Constitution, and do I even have my, there it is, Constitution. Types of membership, section two. Here's the opening statement. This is just a description of what we're going to see in the next uh, few paragraphs. 
Each member of the church is acknowledged to form a vital part of the body and to have a special function in the life of the body. There's that 1 Corinthians 12 passage. Practical considerations, however, require that certain distinctions be recognized in the membership of this church. And again, remember, now we're talking about church polity. We're talking about, so we have these examples of them coming into the church. What was the process? Um, how did they go about that? And we don't have anything, if you notice in your New Testament, we don't have a lot of second-generation churches. We have apostolic churches, and we have those that immediately after that. But we don't have a lot, okay, what churches they planted? How did they do it? And so we're, we're trying to take principles here and apply them to how we go about this. So first thing we note is that every member is a it forms a vital part in the body and has a function. Ephesians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians 12. As I mentioned a minute ago, no unnecessary appendages, no unnecessary organs. Everybody's a vital part. Now you may say, well, I don't feel like a vital part. I'm not a vital part. Well, that's not accurate. You are. Now, you might need some direction and help in trying to figure out how you can be a part of the body. But if if you're just taking the church directory and praying every day through the church directory, you're a vital part of this body. Now, there might be more you could do, but that's really a vital part, praying for the body of Christ. But then there are some practical considerations which lead to this, these three distinctions. First of all, regular members. Turn to Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 47. And by saying regular members, it, it, it's kind of like saying a believing Christian. You know, it, it, we're, we're doubling up. If, the, if you're a member, you're a member. <laughs> or, so we're, but we're kind of, because we have these distinctions, we're talking about, well, normal members, regular members. So this is the norm. This is what should be, okay? Acts chapter 2, we have a picture of it there in the early church and how this functioned. <clears throat> now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise of the Holy Spirit to all those who repent and believe and their sins being forgiven, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. So anybody who believes, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And then here's the, the basic church life that follows. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And that doesn't mean they sold everything and lived in a commune, because we'll see they still had property later on in chapter 5, and they were selling pieces to help the poor. But it was they, they had this spirit. It was, we're here for, for the body. We're here to help the body. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So here's what's expected. Here's the baseline for membership. Everyone should be a member. And that means that they are 
received into the body, until they're released from the body, or until they're disciplined by the body. As long as they're not disciplined, then they're, they're in good standing. Right? And so look at, the, look at section three with me, paragraph A, and let's look at this, this matter of uh, how they were received. How, how we exercise this in terms of receiving members into the church, regular members. All who are received into the membership of the church according to the procedures set forth in the paragraphs that are yet to come. Um, let me, I'm going to hold off on that because I am going to come to that in just a minute. So all we're going to say is it's just they've been received by a due process, whatever that process is, we'll talk about that process in a minute, until they're terminated, their membership is terminated, not them terminated, their membership is terminated, and that by various ways, we'll see that in section 5, and they remain in good standing, that is, as faithful members, unless they're disciplined by the church, and that's Article 6. And this, then, entitles them to all the rights and privileges of membership. Notice what it says. Whose membership has not been terminated in any of the ways specified in section 5, and who do not come under the corrective discipline of the church set forth in Article 6, shall be considered regular members in good standing and entitled to all the rights and privileges of membership in the church. Now, we don't have a section that talks about the rights and privileges of membership. But they basically fall out in, in a number of categories. First, and probably foremost, participation at the Lord's Supper. We said earlier, this is a church ordinance, and being a member bring, allows you to come to the Lord's Supper. We'll talk more about that later in terms of how we fence the table. But that's, that's one of the privileges. The privilege of being able to serve in various capacities within the church is another one of the privileges. The privilege of coming to a congregational meeting and, and hearing what's being said in the business of the church and offering, and, at appropriate times, voting uh, as, as part of the mind of Christ being made known in the church. Not one man, one voice. We're not democracy here. But it's one church with one voice, and the voice is Christ's. And we should be then exercising that, manifesting that by our vote uh, in the church. It's not to say there won't be dissension and differences in the vote, but the fact of the matter is we should be striving for and appreciating unity within the church. So they are entitled to these privileges because we know who they are, those who are in, those who are out, and they could then be dealt with in terms of church discipline. But then there are two additional types of membership which grow out of the fact that we live in a very mobile society. Right, these, these things basically grow out of the fact that we have people that travel all over the place. And they're not necessarily staying in any one place. It's even more so now with COVID and all the things that happened since 2020, people just traveling to different places and living there for a time. And so then, therefore, we have these temporary members and these associate members. Believing that it is an unhealthy situation for someone not to be a member of a local church, we seek to care for those who have various unusual circumstances who are in our midst. And that's where these come from. So temporary members. Follow along as I'll read, and then we'll have a, uh, go through the outline. Paragraph B, temporary members. Persons who come to live in our area for a limited period of time, that is, such as students, military personnel, persons of special work assignments, may be received into or removed from the membership of the church on the same basis and in the same manner 
as persons who have a permanent residence in our geographical area. If such a person is already a member of a church in his place of permanent residence, he need not be released from the membership of his home church, but we were regarded as a temporary member while in our midst, enjoying all of the rights and privileges and sub subject to all the duties and discipline of regular membership. Students of Trinity Ministerial Academy and their wives will automatically become temporary members. When a temporary member leaves our area, he will be released to the oversight of his home church and no longer be regarded as a member of this church. And then you have those texts. And those texts, uh, again, uh, are, are, give us principles for helping us to understand. So who are we talking about in terms of temporary residents or temporary members? Those who are temporary residents. They're here because they're students, military personnel, special assignments. Most notably in the history of this church, that meant Trinity Ministerial Academy students and their wives. Because they were here presumably for a four-year period or three-year period, and they were going back to their church or going out to, to work uh, in the kingdom of God. And so they were temporary members. The reception process, same as for a regular member. The termination process and church discipline, same as a regular member. The privileges, same as any regular member. Two caveats. They can actually maintain a dual membership. They can still be members of their other church and that church be responsible for them while they're members here and we would deal with them. And that would be, that would require, and it did at times with academy students, uh, a lot of communications with the, the home church, right? Because again, they're, uh, under, they're both are responsible for him or her. And the other caveat is if they leave the area, they're immediately released to their home church. <coughs> and then the examples that are given. Apollos, commended by the church in Ephesus to go to the brethren in Achaia, there in Corinth. And they, they helped him to understand things better, and they sent him and commended him to the church. Paul commends Phoebe, who was a, a servant presumably a member of the church in Sancria, and he commends her to the church in Rome, Romans 16, 1-2. Paul urges the church in Colossae to welcome Aristarchus when he comes, Colossians 4.10. Letters of commendation were sent with members who went from one church to another because self-commendation is generally not sufficient. Hey, I'm a good guy. I was really good at my former church. Well, that was until I got in that row with the pastor and this other person. But we won't talk about that. At least I won't. <laughs> oh, okay. So, so wait a minute. That means we need to, to these letters of commendation. Now, we don't just take transfers, right? Somebody comes here from another church. They come in. They come in through the same process, right? They have to be evaluated. Now, we, we take account of the fact that they came from another church and are commended by them. We'll come to that in a minute. But the fact of the matter is, there are people who go from church to church and they are commended to another church and received by other churches. And therefore, we take that as a principle that we can apply to, to use for temporary members, people coming in among us for a short period of time. And then we have something called associate members. Associate members, paragraph C. These are regular members, so they've been received into the church who move away from our area and who cannot find another local church with which they can conscientiously unite, will, 
at their request, be retained as associate members of this church. Such persons must maintain regular communication with the church in order to maintain their associate membership. However, they are urged diligently to seek a church with which they can unite elsewhere. Since associate membership is an abnormality, did you catch that word? Associate membership, them being members but being at a distance, is an abnormality which ought to be rectified as soon as possible. An associate member shall not be allowed to vote in any business meeting of the church. At the discretion of the elders, associate membership may also be granted to invalids, Christian workers, and others whose relationship to the church involves unusual circumstances. So who is this talking about? Who are these associate members? Well, first of all, let's recognize there's some abnormality associated with their circumstances. Primarily, it's regular members who have gone elsewhere who are unable to find a church that they can join. And they request to be held on the membership. Secondarily, it includes invalids, or we would say those with special needs, right? Who can't fulfill all of the full responsibilities. They don't have, they would not necessarily have the, the ability to comprehend a, a matter in church discipline, for instance. We would bring them in as we've brought them in as associate members so that they can be a part of the church, partake of the Lord's Supper, but they don't have these privileges of being able to vote. Christian workers, when church planting, um, uh, Ho Jun Jang, for instance, and, and Yusun, they're, they're outside, they're, they're planting a church, they're still associate members with us. And other unusual circumstances that could arise. What are their requirements? Well, here's one of the big ones. They're supposed to maintain contact with TBC. This is probably not done very well by those who request to be associate members. Well, you didn't call me. Well, did you ever notice that there's phones on both ends of this thing? Right? Yes, we can call them. They can also call us. And they're required by Constitution to contact us. And I can think of one person in particular who, because of a, a marital situation, had to leave the church and could not stay in this area, but could not find a church, was not allowed to go to church because of her, her husband's uh, situation. She kept in contact through one of the members here that she could secretly call to keep that Christian fellowship going for years. And it was a boon to her. She, was, she loved being able to hear the news and be able to be considered by us. And when I would bump into her, I would speak with her and seek to help her uh, and, and along those lines. And <clears throat> now she's a member of a, of a sister church. But until that time, she was one of those associates that then kept in contact with the church. The limitation is they can't vote. And the primary example here is the Ethiopian eunuch who was baptized, but presumably did not have a church to go to. And that's the text that's there. There he is. He, he clearly believes. He's, he's uh, made that profession. And again, there's this uh, very uh, miraculous uh, con context there. Philip being taken to meet this man uh, and be able to speak to him. And presumably he went off. Church history says, some in church history say that he actually became the bishop of the church in Ethiopia. Whether that's the case or not, I don't know. There's the different kinds of membership, and we're out of time. I'd hope to get into the process, but Lord willing, we'll come back to the process uh, next month when we, when we come back to this, this class. So if you have any questions about membership, please feel free to send them in uh, to us via email or talk to one of us, and we'll seek to incorporate that. And I hope that going through this is helping us all to better understand what it is to be a member of Trinity Baptist Church. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, thank you again for your kindness to this church and giving wise men of the past who sought to to draw from from your word the principles necessary to have an orderly church, that there might be a church which is edifying to the people of God and is pleasing to you, our God. And so, Lord, help us uh, to continue to, to be wise and to continue to search the scriptures and to, to hone these practices that we might continually be reforming in our practice uh, as, as a biblical church. Lord, more than anything else, we long for the Lord Jesus Christ to walk among this candlestick. We long for the spirit of Jesus Christ to be at work in our midst. And so we pray in the coming hour when we gather to worship you, your spirit would be here helping us to offer up to you acceptable sacrifices through Jesus Christ and enabling us to meet with you, the God of heaven. Speak to us through your servant. Minister to us as we sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and glorify your name, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.